Well, good morning, New City Church. My name is Nate, good to be the pastor here. Glad you are here with us. Uh, I do want to highlight some of those things that Vanessa was just talking about. When you look at the important dates that, uh, that we have coming up, there are uh, quite a number of them. On the 20th, just so you kind of know, uh, our vendor that, uh, or contractor who's doing all the audio and video it will be in town. And by the end of the week of the 20th, that, that's the 20th of Monday, all of our sound and lighting and video will be in place. It's really, really exciting. I'm really pumped about that. Uh, I, I uh, had a strong meeting with our contractor last week and said, um, hey, just so you remember, October 3rd is our first Sunday, no matter what, like our first Sunday here, and we have some things that we need to get done. And they are working overtime, man. They are working overtime to get it done and to get everything ready. Um, it, it may not all be ready on October 3rd, but we're going to be as ready as we can be. I kind of push in really hard. Audio and sound and lighting, all that will be done. Uh, kids area and carpeting and some final touches might still be in the work on October 3rd, but we'll see uh, what the Lord does. You can keep praying that way. Uh, we have pushed ourselves right, right to the edge of where uh, we want to be on a budget side of things. And so if you want to help and you're like, man, I want to make sure Kid City is rocking and rolling and a student ministry is rocking and rolling, that registry is the way to do that. And so if you've been thinking like, I want to do something, I want to contribute a little bit more uh, to Be Good News, to the initiative, to the relocation. Uh, we put that, you know, that registry so you could identify something. And, you know, uh, we, we had some friends when we got married who were our toaster friends, you know, and they were the ones that got the toaster. And then when the toaster died, our friendship. No, it didn't die. We, 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 we maintain our friendship. Uh, but you can be the toaster friends, all right? You can buy the, the toaster. I don't think we need a toaster for kids, but you can buy whatever that is, all right, and make that a part of your housewarming for New City. So I appreciate you checking that out. The Managing Leadership Anxiety event that's coming up is really important. That's September 29th, 9.30, 11.30. It's a conference with Steve Cuss, who wrote the book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. And, a, and I'd love for you to be there, to invite the teams that you're a part of to be there, invite your boss, or your employees to be there. It's going to be a fantastic uh, uh, morning where Steve just kind of dives into how the gospel speaks to our anxiety. And it, it just turns out that we are in one of the most anxious times in the world right now. And uh, we need this. We need this message. We need these tools. So please register. You can register online. Uh, there's links all over the place. There's a QR code. If you're online right now and you just want to snap a photo, uh, you can do that and, uh, and get that uh, registration done. All right. No things sacred. We're in this series, and I've got one short reading, a prayer, and then we're going to dive into the teaching today. Uh, here's the reading. It's Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, and I want you to kind of walk into the world of David the psalmist here, and just, just think about how this psalm may speak to maybe how you might feel at some points in life. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. This is the meditation that we're going to be meditating on together as a church today. And I just want to pray over that. Father, I pray through your word and um, through the gift of your Holy Spirit that you'd help us to know what are we really? I mean, when we look at the heavens and we see the stars and we see how vast the universe is, it's easy to just feel insignificant in the grand scheme of things. You know, what makes us valuable? What, what, what gives us purpose? Father, I pray that you'd lead us today in the study of your word and the application of your word in our life that we might know 
what we are, that you care for us. It is it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. All right, so we, we did this little three-part series, No Things Sacred, uh, for a reason. It's because we're moving into a facility, and sometimes when you're moving into a facility, it can, you know, the conversation can be a lot about the building and the bricks and the mortar. That's just not what Nusi's ever really been about. And so we wanted to say, what really matters? Like, that's the big idea of the series, is what really matters. Uh, let's put our eyes on the things that really, really matter. And I say this all the time at New City Church, that people matter. Uh, this is important for me and important for you to just remember that people matter. Uh, the thing I say around our house all the time is people matter more than the things. And we, we make budgetary decisions in our home based around the needs of people, uh, not on what we want in terms of things. And so I always say it, my kids can repeat it, but people matter more than things. And so we will uh, sacrifice things to care for people because people matter more than things. This is a, a, a very important sort of posture for us at New City Church. In fact, one of the things I'm sad about in leaving this building is this pole right here. It's got a sticker on it called the Shine Pole. And the Shine Pole uh, it represents, like, we didn't move this pole. I didn't want to move in this space because this pole's right in the middle. I was really afraid someone was going to knock their face on it and get knocked out in a service. It hasn't happened yet, but there's still time. We've got a few weeks left. And so you know, but, but we, I really wanted to move that pole, but it was like this $20,000 to re- relocate this pole, and we decided to put that $20,000 to start Shine School Partnership, which is now a nonprofit that partners schools and churches that are coming good, and we said back then, hey, people matter more than things. Like this, like, like people matter more than buildings. And, and the building that we are, you know, sort of, you know, moving into, that we're renovating, it is for people. Like, that's what it's for. It's to serve people. And I was grateful that we've already been able to use it to serve people in our neighborhood and in our city. Like, we have already been able to leverage the space that God has blessed us with to serve people. And so I want to look at the passage one more time. When I look at the, the stars and the, and the sky, when I, when, I, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? To put the words of David in a slightly different framing, sometimes I feel so insignificant. Am I really that important after all? Man, when I look at the cosmos, I mean, just for a second, just imagine the Milky Way. I mean, the Milky Way is this vast sort of galaxy we live in. Like our, our, little, our little sort of planetary system lives in this place. And the, the Milky Way is about 130,000 light years across. Our sun is about 25,000 light years from the center of the Milky Way. It takes our sun about 250 million Earth years to make one galactic revolution around the Milky Way. There are about 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. And if you wanted to count every one of the stars just in our galaxy, it would take you 3,171 years. It, it's, just, it's just vast. And, and who are we in all of that vastness? That how, how can we have any kind of sense of self-importance in all of that vastness? The psalmist is looking, David's looking at the stars, he's going, what is man? That you're mindful of him. There's a, a photograph that has really impacted me. This is a, a photograph of Earth from 4 billion miles away, taken from Voyager in 1990. There's a pixel right there above the F in the slide. It, when you zoom in, you can see the pixel. That's Earth in a ray of light um, from 4 billion miles away. The Carl Sagan, the astronomer, looking at that pixel, wrote an essay uh, called Pale Blue Dot. This is what Sagan says, not a believer. 
Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, who lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And we might, which is Carl Sagan, sit back, the astronomer, and say, what are we really in the grand scheme of space and time? When you look at Earth as that pale blue dot in the vastness of space, what are we really? And so there are three big questions I want to ask today, and I want to answer for you. And they are, what are you? Who are you? And why are you? And I think these three questions are important for us to be thinking about today. What are you? Who are you? And why are you? What's so significant about you? So let's take about the first question is, what are you? You are not, listen, you are not an independent being. You are a dependent being. You weren't made to be self-sufficient. You were made to be dependent. In the beginning, God, that little phrase in Genesis 1-1, shows us there is one singular independent being, there's one primary mover. There's one being who's self-existent. That's God, and He created everything. And what He created when He created everything is He created an environment that supports life. And without that environment, which you are dependent upon, there is no life. And God made you as, as a part of His making you as a dependent being. So God created an environment that promotes and sustains life, and without it, life doesn't exist. You, you don't exist. He made, he made an environment for you to depend upon for life, and you're dependent physically for the air that you breathe. You're dependent psychologically. Like when you think about this, like uh, in the beginning was the Word, John 1.1, and the Word made everything. He, the logos, the, the logic, God spoke into being science itself and all the things that make science possible, and you're dependent upon truth and and predictability psychologically for your own well-being. You're dependent physically, you're dependent psychologically, you're dependent socially and emotionally because you were made as a social creature. Then God said, let us make man in our image. God in community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit creates humanity in community. And he says about man, it's not good for man to be alone. Like man, We are made for community. So we are dependent socially and emotionally. So you are a dependent being and you are not God. You were created by God. We sometimes like to pretend that we can be God. But you were created by God. But this is good news. Okay, This is really, really good news. Here's why this is good news. You are not an unwanted accident of time. You are not an unwanted accident of time. You are a wanted and loved creation of our Creator God. That's what you are. 
there, there is, a, there is a, a belief about the world that it is just sort of this, this accident of, of history. But the biblical narrative says, no, you're not an accident. Like you were made with intention by a loving creator. He made you. For you, you, for you formed me, says the psalmist. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My soul knows my intention and my purpose. My soul knows that I matter. That you have purpose and we're created for purpose is evidence in your longing for purpose. Think about it this way. Oughtness is hardwired into humanity. You can't find a, a season of humanity where people aren't living with a sense of oughtness, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. Now, we don't always agree about what ought to be, but everyone knows it ought to be different. Like, that's just uh, something everybody can agree upon, all right? We can all agree upon things ought to be different, things ought to change, and we all had this sort of sense of justice, sense of oughtness, sense of rightness. Well, that's because meaning is inextricably bound to the creation. God made you with intention. God made the world with intention, with purpose. C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it this way, mere Christianity. He says, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were, if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. The universe was hardwired for purpose, for meaning. The, the fact that it is intentional is something we can't shake. It's, it's bound to us. But the secular mind has been trying really hard to say, well, hold on a second. The secular mind is conflicted. And I think, so, I think to be honest, inconsistent when it comes to the value and purpose of human life. So Carl Sagan ends that essay <laughs> about the pale blue dot Searching for meaning, Sur searching for, for purpose, at least kind of having a reflective moment, thinking about the value of, of what we've been entrusted with in the universe. And Sagan, not a Christian, not believing in a creator God, says, it's been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. And so here Sagan is searching for meaning. But Richard Dawkins says, well, let's, let's, let's give this a second thought. Let's, let's really think about it. If the world was it's a cosmic accident, it has no intention and no inherent value, then how are we to think about it? And Dawkins says, in a universe of uh, electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's not super comforting to, to a family whose child's a victim of violence. It's just, sorry, you got unlucky. We just don't believe that. We, we don't believe someone's unlucky. We believe some purpose has been violated. 
We don't believe that was just an unlucky sort of happenstance of selfish genes, but we, we, we believe that was an injustice. Why? Why do we feel that way? Because purpose is bound to it. It's bound to the creation. It's bound to us, and we're looking for setting the world back to rights again. So to search for meaning in a cosmos that is eternally meaningless is at the very least intellectually inconsistent. You can't at one, at one moment, in one breath, say that the, the whole world is an accident of time and space, and then in the next breath say that it has meaning and value. G.K. Chesterton points this out beautifully. He says, as a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life, and then as a philosopher that life is a waste of time. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. Exposing the inconsistency. Either life has meaning or doesn't. If it does have meaning, where did it come from? An intentional creator. He created you with intention and purpose and meaning. You see, the civil rights movement and our American pursuit of justice is indebted to the biblical understanding of human purpose. In a sermon preached by Martin Luther King Jr. called The American Dream, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. says this, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei, as it is expressed in Latin, the image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man, from the treble white to a base black, is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. So what are you? What are you? You are not the creator. You are not the creator, but you are a beloved creation with inherent meaning. Let us make man in our image. You, you are not the creator, but you are a beloved creation with inherent meaning and purpose that can never be taken away from you. And you know it in your heart. Like you know it. You can't shake it. You can't shake this sense that the world ought to be a certain way, that I ought to be a certain way, that things ought to be a certain way, because God wired meaning into your soul. Well, that's, that's what you are, but who are you? Well, here, here, here's who you are. Well, here's, here's what you're not. You're not a light bulb, you're a mirror. You're not a light bulb, you're a mirror. When the text says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, what the text is teaching us is that we are not the source of meaning, but we're an image bearer. We reflect meaning. We're not the source of truth, but we are, we are bearers of truth, an image bearer of the ultimate truth. It doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us. The light, the light is outside of us and it reflects off of us, but we're not the source of the light. We're not the source of the meaning. So who you really are on the inside is in a constant search for affirmation on the outside. That's why it is this way. When you're reading, the, when you're reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3, what you're reading about is you're reading about human nature itself. 
And what you're learning is, like, why is it I'm always searching for affirmation? Why is it I'm always looking on the, for the outside to affirm who I am on the inside? Because you are a mirror. You're not a light bulb. You have inherent meaning, for sure. Inherent meaning. The Imago Dei is wired into you. You know that. You have purpose, and you're looking on the outside for affirmation of that purpose. Why? Because God made you as a dependent being. Like you're dependent physically, you're dependent psychologically, you're dependent emotionally and socially. You're a dependent being. And I'm going to be unpacking some things that, uh, that, that Keller does so much better than me in his book, Making Sense of God. And I want to encourage you to buy Making Sense of God and to flip to chapter 6 and read The Problem of Self. This will be enlightening for you and helpful for you. In the book, Keller says identity is composed of two parts. Uh, the sense of self, that's the endurable you, the, the thing that's true about you in every time, space, and circumstance. And then a sense of worth, that's how you regard yourself. The combination of those two things, like who I really am and how I regard who I really am, is what builds my identity. And he says, the modern Western mind has tried to derive its sense of self and worth independently. Has tried to say, you know what, I'm going to find my sense of self, my sense of worth by looking inwardly, looking into myself. In other words, I'm going to try to behave like a light bulb when I'm actually a mirror. And Keller says, the, the cultural message is don't try to get affirmation from others. Affirm yourself because you are doing what you want to do. Be who you want to be. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. That is the heart of the modern Western exp exp expressive individualism. It's you do you. Find it in you. Look within you. Or in the words of Elsa from Frozen, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. It's whatever I intend. But the problem with looking inside of yourself, and you know this, okay? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. The problem with looking inside of yourself to find your sense of self and your sense of worth is that you don't agree with yourself. Like you're conflicted internally. Like one day you feel this, another day you feel that, and sometimes you feel two things that are opposed to one another at the same time. You know, Paul says it this way, he says, so I find it to be a law that I want to do the right thing, but evil lies close at hand. Like I have these intentions that I want to do, but I keep doing things that violate my intentions. In fact, I do things that violate my own self-interest, and people consistently believe and do things that violate their own self-interest, even wittingly, because inside of themselves they're conflicted. And by the way, the original sin was a dependent being trying to claim independence. God made Adam and Eve to be dependent, and Satan tempts them. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Like, you can have independence like God, and you can be separate from dependence upon God. You can, you can take God off the seat of being God, and you can put yourself on the seat and be God for yourself. And that, that temptation to try to be independent when God made you to be dependent is what was a part of the source of the original sin. Now here's the reality. Because you're a dependent being, because God made you as a mirror, not a light bulb, inevitably, we all look to something or someone to validate our identity by providing us with a sense of self and a sense of worth. So it just, it just happens because, well, that's how God made you. 
as an image bearer. And as an image bearer, you're constantly looking for the image to bear that makes me feel that strong sense of self and that strong sense of worth. Keller says it this way, just exposing the sort of radical individualism, how it doesn't work, how it's inconsistent. He says, in the end, we can't say to ourselves, I don't care that literally everyone else in the world thinks I'm a monster. I love myself, and that's all that matters. You just can't live that way. That would... That would not convince us of our worth, unless we are mentally unsound. We need someone from the outside to say we are of great worth. And the greater the worth of that someone or someones, the more power they have to instill a sense of self and worth. Only if we are approved and loved by someone whom we esteem can we achieve any self-esteem. And so no one can truly live as if it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Because we, we're mirrors. That's, that's how we're wired. And so Keller says, I, I just want you to see that there are all of these cultural forces in the world vying for that voice in your life. There are cultural forces vying for the voice in your life that says, yes, that's who you really are. Bring that to the surface. No, that's who you're really not. Push that down. And they're, they're saying, this is who you really are, and this is who you're really not. And so Keller gives this illustration. He says, imagine two, two, two people. Imagine a young Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in AD 800. So you have that person in your mind, an Anglo-Saxon warrior, AD 800. And then imagine yourself, for, for, for a moment, a young man walking around in New York City today. He says, imagine these two people have within them two very similar desires. Imagine that there's a desire that for aggression, a desire to, to retaliate when, when you're dishonored. Well, the Anglo-Saxon, in his cultural moment, his culture would say, that's who you are. You're, you're, a warrior, you're a warrior people. That's who you really are. Bring that to the service. Embrace that. That's who you really are. But imagine that Anglo-Saxon man at 800 AD also had same-sex attraction. Well, in his cultural moment, they would say, that's not who you really are. Suppress that. Push that away. Imagine a, a New Yorker walking around in New York today, and he's got this innate aggression. Well, the culture would say, well, that, that's not who you really are. You should suppress that. In fact, you should see therapy for that. But imagine he has same-sex attraction, and the culture would say, well, that's who you really are. Embrace that. Bring that to the surface. And Keller says there are cultural forces that are, that are pulling out of you these phrases. Yes, that's me. That's who I am. That's what I'll express that. Or, no, that's not me. I, I will control that. I'll suppress that. And we are making decisions about what we suppress inwardly or what we embrace inwardly based upon outside forces that are saying, that's who you really are, that's who you're really not. No one identifies, Keller says, with all strong inward desires. Like, no one identifies with all their strong inward desires. Rather, we use some kind of filter, a set of beliefs and values, to sift through our hearts and determine which emotions and sensibilities we will value and incorporate into our core identity and which ones we will not. Yourself is defined by what one set of any ones has to say. Our inner depths on their own are insufficient to guide us. To put it another way, identity is determined not by our feelings and our desires, but rather by our beliefs about our varied conditions contradictory, changing feelings and desires. In other words, everyone in every cultural moment has looked for what is it that governs these things. 
the competing voices inside of me? Which, which voices on the outside have the authority to speak to my voices on the inside to tell me which ones to listen to and which ones to avoid? Because you are a mirror and not a light bulb, you will inevitably search for an external validation of your internal search for meaning. You, you'll look for it in lots of places. And that's why it's important for us to go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 and to read God saying, I made you. I made you in my image. Like I, I made you in my image. I made you to bear my image and all its beauty and all its glory. And I know you're looking for some validation. I know you're looking for how do I pull this thing up and push that thing down? And what, what thing do I choose to pull up? What thing do I choose to push down? And, and God's saying, listen, I made you in my image. I made you to, to, to bear that image to the world. And here's the reality. If, if, you, if, you, if your mind is unsettled on which voices from the outside get to speak to your voices on the inside, you're going to be filled with anxiety for your life. Because culture changes. And, and an emphasis on conformity through performance ultimately leads to a frowns of insecurity. And the cultural voices are voices that aren't just saying suppress this and enhance that. They're also saying enhance that this way and suppress that this way and perform in that activity. Look, as our ability to compare ourselves to one another has increased, so has our anxiety in the world. And you look at it. The average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. Anxiety is on the rise because while culture is changing and the voices are changing and people are trying to govern the internal voices, the internal search for meaning, they're going, which voice do I listen to? What thing do I enhance? What thing do I pull up? What thing do I push down? Who am I really? And that's creating a profound, a, a profound sense of insecurity, a profound sense of anxiety. And anxiety has a way of imprisoning us, imprisoning us to our insecurities. Am, am, I, am I the right kind of child? Am I the right kind of mother? Am I the right kind of father? Am I the right kind of human? Do I love the right kind of person? And all of these voices are pulling on us and creating with us anxieties and imprisoning us to insecurities. Look, we know that our body's not well when we can't stop thinking about it. You stub a toe, and you know that that toe's not healed until you stop thinking about it. But as long as that toe is hurt, you keep thinking about it. And we know that our sense of self is not okay when we can't stop thinking about it. And culturally, right now, in, 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 in the society that you and I are living in, there's a, a lot of thinking about the self because the self is unsettled. And your mind will never be free from anxiety until your sense of self and worth are secure. And so think about it through the lens of the Apostle Paul. He helps us here. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, what matters is not what the culture thinks of me or even what I think of me, because I'm a bad uh, judge of what's going on inside of me, and my culture is a bad judge of what's going on inside of me. What really matters is what God thinks of me. That's what really matters. And our sense of self and worth are, are, are satisfied and can be satisfied in God. Listen, 
I'm going to read the slide and I'll say something. Our sense of self and worth are satisfied in God because they are not based on who we are, but on who Jesus is. And they're not based upon what we do, but on what Jesus has done. I'm sensing in the culture a rise of shame. You know, this is just my pastoral sort of heart, you know, sort of, just, I'm just detecting a rise of shame that, that's corresponding with a rise of insecurity. And what, I, what I'm sensing in the culture today, especially among young people in the culture today, is, is, a, is a great deal of pressure to identify themselves. Like, what, what am I? Who am I? What's my identity? And if they get it wrong, they feel shame. If they think about it wrong, they feel shame. And then there's, all this, there's all this unsettledness about it and all this pressure to identify, what are you, what are you? What? It's, it's like a constant cultural voice sort of asking you to define who you are. And, and I just feel like God shows up in the Scriptures and He goes, you're mine, that's who you are. My child, my daughter, my son, and you want to know who you are, know me, because in knowing me, you'll know you. And here's what you know when you know me. You'll know that Jesus paid the debt so you have nothing left to pay off and all the shame is gone. Here's what you know when you know Jesus, that Jesus gave us his righteousness so there's nothing left to earn. And what happens is all that insecurity in the self is just settled in Jesus because what, what you find is that Jesus goes, you know what, I know you feel this great pressure reform so you can be approved of and your identity can be, be seen as valuable and worthy in the world's eyes. I just want you to know that I see you as worthy because of what I've done for you. And Jesus looks at you and he says, like, I, I ran the race for you. I lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. And you don't have to perform for me anymore. And it just settles the spirit. And he said, I've given you my righteousness. You have nothing left to earn. Like, there's nothing left to earn. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. And when you receive Jesus, your Lord and Savior, here's what you're receiving. Jesus says, you know what? I lived for you the life you have failed and will fail to live. And I have died for you because of all your failures. And I was buried for you, and I buried your failures away. And I rose from the grave for you, and I've conquered all of your failures, and I've given you my righteousness. And what he does, he gives you freedom. And what Keller calls as the freedom of self-forgetfulness. It rests your sense of self so, so clearly that you just forget about you. So, so what are you? And you are an independent, you're, you're a dependent being created by a God who loves you, who are you? Well, you are what God has made you to be. That's who you are. And you'll never be settled inwardly until you receive that as true. You just won't be settled. I think the secret to knowing who you are is knowing why you are. The secret to knowing who you are is knowing why you are. So let's just talk about why are you. Why are you? Well, God has made you because God loves you. That's why you are. In, in John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus is sort of expressing the fact that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in holy community with love for one another. 
You know, as the Father has loved Jesus, Jesus says, I love you with that kind of divine love. I love you that way. I love you with that love that, 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 is, that is by its nature bound to who God is because God is love and he's made you to love. And when you read 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. That's who he is. He's love. Listen, life's purpose, life's purpose is to love God and love people. It's life's purpose. And God gave us the law to help us, to, to guide us to this end. And Jesus says the most important thing is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. It's always been about love. And when God made us in his image, he made us for the purpose of giving and receiving love and perfect community. That's how he made us. For God said, let us make man in our own image. What is God? God is love. He created us in his likeness. Here's what I've seen in the world, and I don't know if you've seen it too. But I have seen that as the world becomes less settled in its identity, more full of shame, and more anxious, it's also become more angry. And, and that, that's just a sign of self, just, just the self going, I'm not okay, I'm not okay, I'm not okay, I'm not okay, I'm not okay. I'm not settled. And, and when our anxieties imprison us with our insecurities, all we can think about is ourselves. Because our self is unsettled. And it will be unsettled, by the way, because how God made you. He made you as a dependent being, not as an independent being. He made you to search for meaning. He made you to find meaning on the outside because you're a mirror, not a light bulb. And you will be full of insecurity and full of anxiety until your heart rests in your creator. And you'll never be free to truly love until you receive the gift of Jesus. And, and I should add that this is a daily exercise of faith. Because I... I I could receive it right now, and then tomorrow morning I could walk out and have a meeting, and I go into that meeting thinking that it all depends upon me, <laughs> thinking like I'm God. <laughs> and then I have to remember that I'm a dependent being, and I depend totally on Him for everything. And that myself isn't determined by what this person thinks of me in this meeting. Myself is determined by what God has already said about me in His Son, Jesus. And then I walk into that meeting different, absolutely different. Self-settled, interested in God and interested in others. And so why are you? Why are you? Love. That's why you are. Because God loves. And he made you to love. And you won't be free to love until the self is settled. But he loves you. And there's not a single person listening online or watching this right now, sometime later or in this room, that doesn't have inherent value given to, God, given to them by God, that isn't beloved by God, and for whom Jesus hasn't come to live for, 
to die for, to be buried for, and rise from the grave for. And if, you, if, you, if you're unsettled in yourself, look to Jesus.